1: Hello and welcome to a brand new Arseblog Arsecast right here on Arse blog. Dot com. How are you? Hope you're well. Thank you for being here, as always. Quite a busy show for you today. In a few minutes' time, I'm going to be talking to Simon Collings from the Evening Standard about all the bits and pieces that are going on from an Arsenal perspective. New signings? Well, not quite. They haven't been made official yet, at the time of recording anyway, but it does look as if Martin Odegaard and Aaron Ramsdale will become the latest new additions to Mikel Arteta's squad, if, though, the deals don't go through, please do not refer to this as the Jinx cast or the hoodoo pod or something like that, because it won't be our fault. It'll probably be because the club don't have any pens. We spend all this money on new players and nobody has a pen. There isn't a pen to be had. The stationery cupboard is empty. Just a lone post-it note on one of the shelves on which somebody has scribbled, buy more stationery. P.S. I took the last pen. In seriousness, though, those signings are expected to go through, so I will be chatting to Simon about that. After that, it is Philippe O'Claire, and Philippe is here to talk about a story that he did this week. Well, he's done, over the last 18 months, an investigation involving gambling, gambling companies, uh, the Premier League, and much more. So we'll be chatting to him about that. We'll also get some Arsenal thoughts from Philippe as well. I should just point out that this week I have been having a few issues with audio. I don't quite know how or exactly why this happened, but basically everything was being recorded on my Mac with... Loads and loads of compression. And again, I I just don't know why. I restarted everything. I unplugged everything. I rebooted everything. I checked all the cables. There's no compressor anywhere because that's all done via software. I really have no idea what happened. So I had to swap out uh, a mixing desk for a different mixing desk. And that appears to be uh, the issue. Um, although quite why the other mixing desk was doing that, I don't know. Look, anyway, I'm off the point. The main point is, though, the audio on the Philippe interview might sound a little bit weird or a little bit strange in places. So uh, I apologize for that. Uh, as those of you who listen to this on a regular basis know, this is something I am quite pernickety about. And uh, yeah, it bothers me when the audio is not the way that it should be. Um, again, it's not unlistenable or anything like that. It's just it's just wrong to my ears anyway so I just wanted to give you a, a heads up on that but that's coming after I speak to our first guest and as I said from the Evening Standard it is Simon Collins. hi Simon
0: hi Andrew how are you doing
1: I'm alright thank you uh, season could have started better but look that's out of our control Uh, There's nothing we can do about it now other than look forward to the next 37 games. And it does look as if Arsenal are going to have a couple of new players coming in pretty soon. Whether they're in the squad for the Chelsea game remains to be seen. At the time of recording, they haven't signed yet officially, but we're expecting Martin Odegaard to arrive from Real Madrid and Aaron Ramsdale from Sheffield United. Let's begin with Odegaard, player we know, obviously, given his time on loan uh, with us last season. Are you in any way surprised by... By maybe some of the reaction to his arrival, is it a case that uh, familiarity not quite breeding contempt, but like if we were signing Martin Odegaard from Real Madrid straight away this summer to to add some creativity to the team? I think most people would be absolutely delighted with the with the profile of the player, the talent that he has, et cetera, et cetera. But I think because he is associated with what was an underwhelming season last time around, it's not quite the shiny thing that people are hoping for.
0: Yeah. I mean, I find it a strange one because when he was brought in in the January window, uh, I think Edu rightly got a lot of praise for that in a difficult market, getting a player of that quality and on loan. And I didn't, personally see anything over the course of those six months taking into the fact Odegaard had an injury to deal with he was settling into a new league a new country no pre-season a very limited amount of games with Real Madrid in the first half of the season I didn't see anything that made me think "Oh, I don't want this player to, to be at Arsenal anymore mm. so I do find it strange I think it is partly there is particularly with transfers fans want to see something new something shiny you know something different to what they've seen but i think with Odegaard, all those benefits of him basically having had those 6 months he knows the team he knows the club he knows the manager knows the way they want to play and particularly in that number 10 role i think having someone come in who already knows the system i think is going to be valuable for arsenal and i think in the in, in the market 30 million pounds for a 22 year old who's only getting better and is captain of his country i think it's a it's a pretty good deal and one Edu should probably get some some credit for, which he isn't getting masses of at the moment, understandably.
1: Yeah, well, that, that's maybe a conversation we can have another time. I want to stick uh, to Odegaard. Uh, you know, when uh, people talk about the second half of the season, last season, and Arsenal's improvement, um, which is certainly, you know, they set a low bar in the first half of the season. The second half of the season was better, and I'm not here to have the, the debate about whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, because seasons play out over 38 games, and ultimately that is what you're judged on. But Emile Smith-Rowe is credited, and rightly so, with... Um, changing the, the way the team played and providing more creativity, more attacking impetus. I think that's true of Odegar as well. Phil Costa has done a piece for for Ars blog, um, which will be published when uh, odegar uh, signing is official. And he said he created 18 chances in 767 minutes across all competitions for Arsenal. It's a smaller sample size, but that's creating a chance every 42.6 minutes, which is ahead of Smith Rowe, 533 Kieran Tierney sixty six point two and Danny Sabayo sixty six point four. And when you look at the squad right now, and you look at what Arsenal have got to choose from in the final third, that kind of creativity over the course of a season, when hopefully he won't have an injury, when he's settled, when he's adapted, when you know maybe the team is a little more fluid. And I know that's um, maybe a little optimistic, but you know you can really see that that Martin Odegaard right now absolutely improves this Arsenal team and this Arsenal squad.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I think he's probably, other than Ben White, the first real sign in the club have made where you go, yeah, he's definitely in, in the starting 11 and he, mm. he improves the starting 11 instantly. I think the thing I noticed with him, particularly that West Ham game, I remember watching him at that and the influence he had on the game there wasn't necessarily the final pass or the assist I mean he didn't get an assist in that game but his ability to link the sort of base of the midfield to and the players further up the pitch or the fullbacks was something I think Arsenal massively mm. been, been missing before and I think we saw it a bit in the, in the Brentford game where it was you know get the ball down to Tini and see what he happens I think Odegaard offers that link between the two players playing at the base of the midfield and, and the attackers going forward so his numbers in terms of assists might not be great, but I think if you look back and look at, you know, things like the second assist, I think he'll be high. And the one area I think he'll probably himself admit he needs to improve is scoring goals. Hmm. But I think if you've got someone like Pepe in that three behind the striker, he's he's someone who can influence it there. And, and I saw enough, um, that Leeds game, I think, is probably what everyone, every fan will be hoping for is the blueprint going forward where they, you know, they really took Leeds apart and, Having Smith-Rowe, Saka, Odegaard, Pepe, if you want him in there, behind a striker, I think is a really really nice-looking attacking tree and one that has different qualities and different strengths.
1: Well, that's it. I mean, Smith Rowe is a, a number 10. He obviously can do uh, plenty on the ball. His movement is superb. But I think if you're looking for somebody to play passes in behind, if you're looking for somebody to sort of split the defence open, whether it's in that inside right channel for Pepe, whether it's sending Aubameyang, if he's playing, you know, through from uh, inside the Arsenal half to, to, to actually send players in behind the opposition defence which doesn't happen uh, a great deal. He really does have the ability to do that. And and we've seen last summer or last season that he can play with Smith-Rowe as well. This isn't a case of either or. It's it's a case of adding greater variety and greater quality and different qualities to that that uh, that team which lacks it in the final third that that sort of cutting edge which hasn't been there which is in many ways responsible for the lack of goals that that arsenal had to endure last season because it really isn't um okay there are issues of personnel but it's not as if the players at arsenal have can't score goals and don't score goals you know there are things that Mikel Arteta is going to have to work out in terms of his own, his own system. But, you know, having another player who can do what Odegaard can do is, is I think, is going to be invaluable.
0: Yeah, and, and the key I think you touched on there is the idea of him playing with Smith-Rowe. I know a lot of fans were a bit apprehensive when Odegaard was coming in and thinking this was going to stifle Smith-Rowe's development. But Arteta was very quick to point out they can play together I know a lot of the analysts before they signed Odegaard had said that those two would work in the same system. Mm. I think because Smithrow actually, I mean, he he can play as a number 10, but I almost think he's sometimes better on that left where he has a bit more freedom and he's a bit more of an, an enabler, um, particularly when he's got Tierney outside him drifting in and creating the space. I think it sometimes suits him being left. And I know he's taking a number 10 shirt. I know he's a very confident boy, but Having that role of being the sole number ten at the club, mm. I think it just would have been unsustainable, unsustainable definitely. And then having Odegaard in there is another option playing together. It just gives so many different opportunities to Arteta that even a week ago, when we were looking at that Brentford game, mm. looking at how Arsenal could change it off the bench. I know there was also know Aubameyang, Lacazette, but they weren't really there. How you could change that game? So I think it's a really important signing. It's a signing everyone knew they had to do before the summer started. And at least now they've, they finally got that type of player through the door.
1: And it's uh, good money too. I mean, I know it's not Mm. an insignificant outlay. It's 30 million pounds or maybe 35 million pounds there or thereabouts. But, you know, when you consider that he is just 22, he's coming to Arsenal with, I think plenty to prove as well. You know, he went to Real Madrid with a lot of hype as a 15 year old and, you know, it hasn't worked out for him there ultimately. Um, I've said this before, but I'm sort of put in mind of some other players who went at a young age to big clubs and came to Arsenal and and really found their home. So, you know, £35 million, £30 million for a 22-year-old, five-year contract, uh, all the time to develop and to mature as a player. And I think, you know, to take on responsibility um, as one of the de facto leaders of the team as well, I think that might well be part of why Mikel Arteta has brought him in as well obviously his technical qualities what he can bring the team but i think he's looking for people on the pitch who are leaders maybe we've lacked uh, certain individuals in that sense or some of the players that who were or who were tasked as leaders weren't quite up to the task so i think there's a good combination here between his technical ability his quality as a footballer and also as somebody in the dressing room who can as this team begins to get a little bit younger grow into one of those leadership roles in a big way
0: mm. i mean i think he's he's already captain of norway isn't he um certainly everything i heard from the club when he was there the first time is that he was you know very much an arteta type player an exceptional trainer brilliant work ethic and as much as we, you know, we didn't like having games without fan it did give you an insight into hearing players on the pitch and he was a very vocal player particularly with the press actually you go back and watch some of those, I think that West Ham game, that was one of the game, remember, but his ability to press relentlessly and also his calling up and his shouting at players, Lacazette, players more senior than him, mm. he would have no issue telling them that they need to pull their weight and work and coordinate that press. And Arteta needs someone like that in that attacking trio. Um, as for the fee, I think, I'm pretty sure when he signed on loan, there was talk of it being, you know, 50 million, 60 million pounds if Arsenal were serious about keeping him in the summer. It's obviously partly due to the COVID market, the fact he's got two years on his contract. But I think for that amount of money, I think it is a good deal for Arsenal. I mean, it's difficult to, to, you know, to say money and coming out, money going straight out, but 25 million or so for Joe Willock and 5 million more, you've got Martin Odegaard. I think that's pretty shrewd from the club, given that Odegaard fits the system and, and Joe Willock doesn't seem to as much. And I think for everything that has gone on in this market for Arsenal to get a player for that fee and uh, time down to that longer contract when Madison was talked of being you know over double that price i think it's it's a good bit of business and like the other signings there is some sort of resale value if if needs be down the line you need to try and shift this player on i can't see you being Lump for taking a huge loss or being stuck with him on your on your books.
1: Yeah, it's true. And uh, yeah, look, I think uh, we we all hope that he's going to have a long and fruitful career at Arsenal and will bring plenty to the team that we're we're missing. The other players coming in is Aaron Ramsdale from Sheffield United. Arsenal are in need of a goalkeeper. Have been in need of a goalkeeper throughout the summer. Burned Leno. Um, you know even if he were staying, it doesn't look like his long-term future is going to be at Arsenal, needed some competition, but more importantly, needed some backup because uh, Alex Runison isn't quite there, and I don't know that Arthur Oconquo is is quite ready yet, so there is a gap in the squad there, but it does seem that by targeting Aaron Ramsdale, by paying the amount of money that they're going to pay for Aaron Ramsdale, which is £24 million plus around £6 million in add-ons, they're bringing in... I mean, you do, you just don't pay that money for a backup goalkeeper. No club does. So the message is fairly clear, isn't it, that they see this guy as somebody who can come in and and become the number one goalkeeper in the long term. Before we just talk about his prospects of doing that and, and what have you, do you have any concerns about how Bern Leno might react to this? Like if Arsenal brought in a a young 21-year-old goalkeeper for six, seven million pounds who was back up to Leno, you know, you could say there's some healthy competition. It might just sort of, you know, keep him on his toes, etc., cetera, et cetera. But we know that things aren't great with Leno. We know that things are, um, you know, probably going to come to an end at some point in in the not-too-distant future. Is there any chance that this signing, rather than motivating Leno or 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 lighting a fire under his arse, as some people might say, is going to do the opposite, where he's going to look at this and say, well, it doesn't matter what I do. This guy, Ramsdale, is here to take my place sooner rather than later.
0: Yeah, I mean, like you say, it's not so much... It is really throwing down the gauntlet to Leno to bring in a player like this and spend that amount of money. Um, And I remember Leno before... The sort of that summer where Emmy Martinez had the brilliant run in the FA Cup, and he was linked with a move, and it was just before that Fulham game where obviously Martinez left to, to join Villa. And Leno was very bullish about never fearing losing the number one shirt. You know, I'm the number one; it was never in doubt. Mm. Um, but I think this is the first time he's really been genuinely challenged and having someone like that. And I, I personally think it is a good thing for him because I, I find his better performances of when he's been challenged and when he's actually had some competition. I don't think it helps him having no one in there. Mm. But I think this for him, if there had been any lingering in, in doubt in his mind this summer about, you know, maybe I should sign a new contract, maybe I should stay, I think this for him should just solidify his thought that it's it's time to move on. And and it is a question of Ramsell, you know, when or if he becomes the Arsenal number one, mm. how quickly that transition, I suppose if they have those Carabao Cup games in the first half of the season, that does give some time for Arteta to rotate it a bit and give them both some games. But you would think by the time it gets to January, Ramsdale you would expect to be the number one and Leno by then would be thinking, you know, it's time to move on now. I, I don't get any sense that Arsenal are going to look to move on now simply because of the time in the window and you don't really want to bring in two new keepers like that.
2: But yeah.
0: I think this, now Leno knows that it's that it's time to move on. I, I can't see him being a disruptive figure who's going to start throwing his toys out the pram, but um, mm. I think this will just confirm to him that it's, yeah. it's time to move on. Yeah,
1: yeah, this is probably going to be his last season at Arsenal, uh, whatever happens. Uh, are you surprised at all that Arsenal have gone after Ramsdale? I mean, he does fit into the what appears to be the overreaching strategy uh, when it comes to recruitment this summer, is to bring in players who are in their early 20s, 21, 22, 23. Those are the guys that we've signed. Odegaard, 21, Ben White's 23. The other two guys, 21 years of age. You know, uh, it, it seems very clear now that this is actively what Arsenal are doing in terms of rebuilding the squad. So in that sense you can see why they've gone for a twenty-three year old homegrown goalkeeper and I think that might well have played a, a part in their decision making here and also, you know, the fee that Arsenal have paid because you're paying that that English tax, if you like. But I don't know that he is like if you told people three months ago that Arsenal would be spending this money on Aaron Ramsdale, I think they would have said, You're crazy. Why why would they spend that much on a on a goalkeeper? Um, it is a bit of a surprise. Uh, he's been a surprise target. Um, can you sort of come to terms or or try and understand exactly why it is that of all the goalkeepers that are available to Arsenal, they've gone after this guy in particular?
0: Yeah, I, I mean, it, I think it was Matt Ryan who was saying in his interview. I think he did it with Fox Sports in Australia. That yeah. he he sort of broached the club about staying, and and he was made it pretty clear to him that they were going for a homegrown goalkeeper, which instantly narrows the field of of targets that you want to get in. Um, As for Ramsdale, as a player, I haven't seen masses of him. Um, And I think I would have liked it more as a deal if it had been, you know, half the fee, if we'd been looking at 12 to sort of 15 million pounds. I think just everything around it there, it's easier to see him coming into Leno and providing competition and not having to be the number one. I think the outlay is less pressure on him. I think the fee now makes him sort of sixth, fifth, most expensive goalkeeper of all time. Wow. Um, but you're paying for that English premium of a goalkeeper. And it reminded me of when Everton signed Jordan Pickford, I think it was four years ago. And he was the same age as Ramsdale. He was 23 at the time. And again, he cost a large amount of money. I think he might have actually been the third most expensive goalkeeper in history at the time when they paid out to get him. And there were doubts mm. around him at that time because he'd come from a team like Sunderland who weren't compet- competing at the top of the table. They were down the bottom. And he's matured at Everton over time to establish himself as England goalkeeper. But I think we've seen from his trajectory that there have been ups and downs. And I just hope with Ramsdale that the club, the fan base and the management themselves are prepared that he is very much a work in progress because 23 is, is very young by goalkeeping standards. Mm. Um, and he is going to be in the spotlight from the start when he, when he gets into that Arsenal team. So I just hope there's a bit of time with him um, because I think there are some some raw talent in there but it's going to need to be given time like a lot of the signings have made this summer.
1: Yeah, I mean I think he probably of all of them is under the the most pressure because it's a high profile position goalkeeper and it's one of those where I think maybe in some ways he's been unfairly held up against someone like Andre Onana, uh you know who a lot of people would have liked Arsenal to sign for a knockdown fee, but again, you know, I think there are impediments to that deal given the fact he's serving a drugs ban until November goes to the AFCON in January and also may have much better offers from much more uh, successful clubs at this moment in time if he hangs on and leaves on a Bosman next summer. So I think in some ways the comparison is, is uh, I understand it, while people might, might want one over the other, but I'm not sure it's a case that Arsenal have chosen him over someone like Andre Onana. Nevertheless, there is a huge... There's a huge weight of opinion about him um, that he is going to have to deal with. It's going to be quite tough, isn't it? Because he's not going to be unaware of public opinion as much as players might want to insulate themselves from social media. And you know, look, social media isn't the the true barometer of what, what fans think. And what maybe what fans think and how fans behave inside the ground are, are two different things. Uh But, you know, he's going to feel that pressure. He's going to feel the pressure of the transfer fee and also the pressure of knowing that when he comes to a club like Arsenal with perhaps a lot of doubt about his ability to do the job, um, that he is going to have to really deal with a hell of a lot of pressure uh, from day one.
0: Yeah, and if he needs any example or any indication of what it's going to be like, he only needs to look at Ben White from the Brentford game. You know, one game into his Arsenal career, £50 million signing, huge price tag. And Ben White's probably not had that, where the level of analysis and detail on on him after a game, the pundits will quite happily spend you know, 15, 20 minutes just talking about him. Mm. And that would very, very, really happen at Brighton unless he had a storming game against Manchester United or Manchester City. So Ramsdale's going to need to be prepared for that level of scrutiny that will come with playing for a top club where, the analysts, the pundits, the media, social media, everyone is watching you in your spotlight. And, you know, when he was at Sheffield United, he probably wasn't being scrutinised that much to the extent that a lot of journalists, a lot of fans haven't seen much of Aaron Ramsdale, so don't know a lot about him. But within the space of a few weeks, he is going to be scrutinised heavily. And it's up to to him and the club to make sure he's ready and braced for that. Um, Certainly with Ben White, everything I've, Seen and read about him seems like he is the sort of person who can live with that expectation. But mm. we've seen it takes time, and these price tags hang around players. I mean, look at Nicola Pepe; that will forever be mentioned in the same breath of him for as long as he's at Arsenal, because that is just the way it works.
1: Yeah, that's true. Well, look, best of luck to him when he does arrive, uh, because yeah, it's it's a lot to deal with, and 23 is still pretty young for uh, any player, let alone a goalkeeper as well. I guess that brings us to the size of the squad and the amount of players that Arsenal have. And last season, there were so many players that some just didn't get registered. And it looks, when you go through the squad list right now, that that's going to be the case again, unless, unless, unless they can do some deals to send players out the door. It's a challenging market. We all know that. It's a difficult market. But the reality is that Arsenal have spent a considerable a considerable amount of money this summer already. And in order to recoup some of that money as well as make space in the squad, they're going to have to get rid of players. You know, it sounds a bit harsh, but that is the the reality of it. How confident are you that that deals can be done for some of the players that are maybe on the fringes of things right now? And I'm thinking in particular of some of the the young English guys who are probably – the easiest to find a home for, given the homegrown status, you know, Reese Nelson, Ainsley Maitland-Niles, Eddie Nketiah, Um You know, these are players who should be attractive to other Premier League clubs, at least.
0: Yeah, I think I'm confident certainly those young English players will be able to be moved on. Um, the likes of Nketiah, Maitland-Niles, Nelson. I just feel that like even for, you know, higher championship clubs, lower le- lower Premier League clubs, mm. there's not a huge amount of risk with taking on one of those players, given their age, given their homegrown status. The talk, the money you'll be investing in them, particularly if the market picks up, you should be able to make back or you won't be making a huge loss to them. If, if someone like Reese Nelson, I think is a prime example of a player, you know, one year in his contract, hasn't really performed or, or proven his ability, you could get him at a knockdown fee this summer and within, you know, two, three years, he could have rebuilt his career and be be worth a lot of money. So I feel like those players should be easy to move. The ones where they're going to struggle, you know, are the likes of, say, a you know, £100,000 a week, Lucas Torreira, um, Willian as well. These players on big wages um, with little value and not really involved at all in the squad. I mean, Willian posted on Instagram, he was cycling on an indoor bike during the Brentford game. Terrell was posting it, being at a theme park with his family. Um, Kolasinac, nowhere to be seen. So they're not even in the sort of market space of being you know, offered out to them. I thought Ketcher in pre-season put himself in the shop window fairly well until mm. he got injured and probably would have got a chance against Brentford. So that's where I think they're going to struggle. And the hope with them, I think, would have to be that you can somehow get them on loan and get someone paying some of their wages. Just to ease a bit of the burden of it and and kick the can down a, the road a little bit.
1: How like how much is on the club to compromise at this point? Given it's August nineteenth as we're recording, the transfer window closes August thirty first. Uh, you know we've seen Arsenal take unprecedented steps to shift players uh, this year. You know they they paid off, literally paid players to go away, which is. Nothing I've seen before, really, uh, in my lifetime as an Arsenal fan, but that was the situation. Does it set a dangerous precedent when you're trying to move players on, particularly those players who are experienced, have big wages, are comfortable, aren't necessarily like chomping at the bit to move somewhere else, to uproot, to move their family, to learn a new language, go to a new culture, whatever it might be, it might be comfortable. And you have to incentivize their departure at times, but it does set a a dangerous precedent perhaps whereby every player you have like this is going to say, well, I might as well hang on and see what they give me, you know, big envelope of cash in a carriage clock to leave and clubs who clubs who want the the players will say, well, you know, if we hang on long enough, maybe Arsenal will let them go for for free and we can snap them up, or or Arsenal might do a deal where, you know, they're gonna pay seventy percent of this player's wages for the duration of a loan deal. So it's a tricky balancing act in some ways, I guess.
0: It's very difficult. And you look at Kalasanac it's no secret. You no some of his best friends at Arsenal were were Mesut Ozil and mm. and Squadra Mustafi, and both of his mates have been paid off. So he doesn't need to look far for an example of what happens if yeah if you wait and um and you get your money. But it's it will again it will come up to the debate of does the player want the move enough to to leave and get his wages? I certainly think Kalasenac to play for Schalke from January to to June last season took a hit on. On his wages to get that done. I think if they had stayed up in the Bundesliga, I'm pretty sure he would have he would have stayed with them. Um, and as for the getting the rest of the players out of the clubs, it is it is really a poker game at the moment between all those teams who are trying to get players off their books. And it's not just Arsenal in this situation. I mean, just take a look back at that friendly against Chelsea. You know, the players they had coming on, Zappa Costa, mm. Barbar Rahman. There are a lot of clubs with players that they want to shift at this point in time and the feeling around clubs and agents has always been it'll pick up you know the money will trickle down things will things will start kicking into gear but we're still sort of waiting for that to happen and it will come to the point I think probably in the last week or so where clubs either blink and say right we're not going to get the player or they act and say okay right let's do a deal what how can we get a compromise mm. on this? and I think it's going to be a very hectic week for for those sort of deals you know loan deals and and short-term deals. I think all the big business has been done by, by clubs, but I could expect that last week to be, to be busy.
1: It could be quite panicked. Couldn't it across, uh, across Europe and particularly across the premier league, a lot of clubs who still want to bring players in, but can't do it until they let players go. So people are going to be compromising all over the place. Um, We'll be interesting to see just finally, I think we should talk about Mikel Arteta and, after the first game of the season that Arsenal were beaten in, didn't look fully prepared for, the spotlight is well and truly on the manager again. Um, He's been backed in a really substantial way by the club, big time the money they've spent on Ben White that they're going to spend on Odegaard and Ramsdale, Ramsdale, very, very much the player that Mikel Arteta wanted over other choices. So, you know, they've, they've backed him in that sense. And they brought in, um, Laconga and Tavares who are two good young players who we hope are going to provide depth in the squad. The only outgoing really at this point is Joe Willock. So, you know, you're looking at a hundred million pound plus investment so far this summer. So the strategy is there, bring in young players, bring in players who can grow together and develop together and, and maybe create this kind of core, particularly around a, a sort of a homegrown group as well. Um, but there's no real hiding place for Arteta now this season. Like all the things that people said he should get, he has got preseason. He's had a preseason backing from the club. He's got backing from the club. Um, I, I fear that this month could be really difficult. Like, I think August could be bad for us um, as a team. It's going to heap a load of pressure on Mikel Arteta. I can't envisage any scenario in which, after giving the manager that much money and investing in the players that he wants, they make any kind of decision after three games. I just don't see that as in any way realistic. However he does have to start producing with the resources that that the club have given him. And the minimum you would have to say that this season should provide for Arsenal is, is a return to Europe via the premier league. And I know we could finish 12th and get back into the Europa league by winning the FA cup, but I don't think anyone would view that as a, as a successful campaign. It's a, a success in terms of a trophy, but it wouldn't be a successful season. So, there really is a lot of pressure on this guy to start, A, producing results and repaying the faith, I think, uh, and the investment that the, the club have made.
0: Yeah, and I, I think you're spot on with the fact that there's all those mitigating factors and, you know, explanations and reasons he had for the difficult periods have mm. now completely gone. And you can throw in the fact he's going to have one game a week too to deal with. He's going to have a full week of preparing. And one of his strengths is coaching and time on, on the training pitches. And he's got that as well in the market. I can't really think of a player this summer where Arsenal haven't got the target they wanted. It was clear. They wanted Ramsdale. They bid multiple times. They got him. It was clear. They wanted Ben White. They bid four or five times. They stretched the budget to get him. It was clear. They wanted Lekonga. You know, it's clear. They wanted Odegaard other than maybe, Tammy Abraham, you could say, was one that sort of got away, but I don't think that was something Arteta was going to, you know, fall down over. Mm. So he's got all the players he wanted on his list, so he can't have any complaints about that. And I agree with you. I think this opening month will be difficult, and that Norwich game, just after the international break, looks absolutely crucial, particularly when you consider Arsenal could have, you know, naught points from the first three games. I think something Arteta is going to have to contend with as well is. I don't know whether hearing him speak in his press conferences, whether he fully is ready for what the Emirates could be like if things don't go his way quite early on this season. Um, partly probably because he hasn't experienced it for what, 18 months. Mm. Um, but that, to me, it feels very much like that fan base is on, a, is on a knife edge. They obviously want to support the team. They want Arteta to do well. But the patience is already wearing a bit thin, and I think he, Arteta, should be braced for what you know could happen among a disgruntled fan base if things don't start well. And he will know that he needs to quickly address address the situation and start fast. Because, yeah, just I don't feel like those explanations and reasons will ring true if if he has a start like he did last season. I just can't see it washing with anyone really
1: no I mean they they, they can't there's, they just don't work and the circumstances I will be the first to acknowledge that for a young manager a rookie manager coming into a club the size of Arsenal I don't think any any manager has had the start to a managerial career that he has had and the challenges that he has had to deal with but um, you know there's only so long that you as a manager can, can hide behind certain things I'm not saying he's hidden you know but those reasons don't stack up. Uh, How much do you think style of play might mitigate some slowness to the start of the season, if you like? Because, look, like I said, they're not going to make a decision over three games. The start of the season could be difficult. But if Arsenal finish comfortably in fifth, that sort of um, initial angst will be, I'm not going to say forgotten, but it'll be easy to put to one side. If the team are playing good football and play good football throughout this season, something that a little more akin to what people expect or want to see from Arsenal, you know, obviously more creation, more goal scoring, a little more bravery in terms of the attacking play. Do you think that will play a part? Like if the crowd can be excited by the football that we play, it might help even if some of the results are a little bit disappointing along the journey.
0: Yeah, definitely. And and let's be honest, Arsenal aren't really going to be... They're obviously not going to be challenging for the Premier League. It's going to be difficult in the cup competition. So, it's is, is just as important as, as the destination is the journey and how mm. Arsenal make that journey. And if they make it in the way that Arsenal fans are used to seeing the team play, with style, with attacking football, I think he will win fans over quite quickly and also if it's done with young players you know players from yeah. the club's academy if it's smith Rowe, if it's saka we already saw how much fans bought into that because that was you know it's their own it's your own players and everyone loves seeing that and if the style of plays is, is much better 100 percent, that will make a difference to him and i think it'll it will buy him time it'll buy him you know support from from the fans as he tries to rebuild this club um but at the end of the day it will come down to to results mm. and um if Arsenal suddenly start leaking goals as much as the attacking football's back, it's not going to wash. But I I hope for his sake that he manages to get off to a good start because I feel like the players they've brought in, you can see what they're trying to do. I think you can see the plan is to build a young, exciting, hungry squad. And I just hope he's able to reflect that on the pitch and, and these guys are able to succeed where 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 they haven't so far. Well,
1: let's hope so. Fingers crossed we can uh, hit the ground running again quickly after what happened against Brentford. we better leave it there, though. Simon Collings from The Evening Standard. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks very much. Thank you very much indeed to Simon. You can find him on Twitter at SR underscore Collings, at SR underscore Collings, and he covers Arsenal for The Evening Standard. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Okay, joining me now on the Arscast, delighted to welcome, as always, Philippe Eau Claire.
3: Hello, Philippe. Hello to you. Hello, everyone.
1: Uh, We are going to talk Arsenal in a little while, but I wanted to talk to you this week because you wrote a really interesting and excellent piece for a publication called Jossimar Football. It's about gambling and the Premier League and I think people will have opinions about that but maybe some of the stuff that you've, you've uncovered in this article might be a bit of a surprise. I think there's a sort of surface level awareness of, of gambling and maybe some, mm-hmm. um, you know, some opposition to the proliferation of gambling ads here, there and everywhere. Whenever you try and watch a football match, there's the rotating head of a famous actor telling you to put <laughs> money on things. But that's, just, that's sort of like the the, the
3: responsibly don't forget yes, responsibly. of course every.
1: of course I apologize uh, profusely for not mentioning that part of it but you you've written this for a publication called Josimar football can you just give me a bit of background or information as to what exactly that is
3: well, uh, Josimar, or Josimar is to start with a football publication, which is a bit like one of those luxury quarterlies that you, you get, you know, following the example of the Blizzard. You know, you've got Santos in, uh, mm. in the Netherlands, you've got Mundial, you've got 8x8 in America and so forth. So it is um, what I would call a luxury uh, publication, so to speak, even though it runs on very little money. But it, it produces those beautiful quarterlies. Um, but on top of that, there's also a website which is entirely devoted to investigative journalism. And um, I've been working with them for several years now, and I've been covering a lot of stuff about uh, African football politics in particular, FIFA-related topics. Mm. Uh, they've, they were the magazine who uncovered uh, the fact that... Um, uh, Slave work was used on Russian stadiums prior to 2018 and North Korean slaves, that is, who were shipped in to uh, do the work in St. Petersburg and elsewhere. Uh, they've done some quite extraordinary reporting on um, uh, migrant workers in Qatar as well, when it was not a subject that necessarily many people were interested in. And it is, I, I think, in um, in contemporary media, it's probably the only media in football which is specifically uh, aimed at people who want to understand how the game is working on a global basis, and um, so it will. Um, it's, it's a small team of people, which is augmented by you know people who, collaborators who are a little more episodic, so to speak. Yeah. and I've be, I've, be, I've really become you know one of the um, main uh, investigative writers for this publication, and uh, it's given honestly me a, a, a new uh, impetus. To, to carry on in football journalism when honestly there are so many things happening that sometimes you really wonder why you're carrying on covering the game. But we we cover the game in our own fashion. And I would obviously recommend to everyone who is interested in, uh, in the uh, arcane world of football and football politics and corruption and all these kind of stories to have a look at our website and... Uh, uh, there's a There are some very interesting pieces about uh, oliguna Scholcharh as well in there mm. uh, which i'm surprised haven 't been taken on by British media, but there you go i mean I don't suppose it would surprise anyone,
1: you know, if you were to say that there is a lot of corruption in football, that there's a lot going on behind the scenes at Premier League level, mm-hmm. at international level, at UEFA, at FIFA, across all the national organizations. You talked about the World Cup in Qatar. You know, th- there are, I guess, throughout the game, countless um, examples and... Um, investigations that could be made into all kinds of things that go on. Either the transfer market, for example, there's a, you know, one that people will say, yeah, there's a lot of dodgy stuff goes on with that, you know, agents, backhanders, all of those kind of things that people say, yes, I'm well aware of that. But do you sometimes get the sense that there is, you know, not quite an apathy, but not necessarily an appetite to follow up on the things that people are aware of on a surface level yes i know that there are elements of football that are corrupt but like you know i still love football i can't do anything about this it's just the way it is we'll just get mm. on with it you know is is that something that that you know you're trying to change with the pieces that you're writing and and the the sort of investigations that you're carrying
3: out yes very much so and and i would say that i would go back to the two words you you used uh, apathy and um And the other one was, see, that's my short-term memory is gone. Uh, And um, apathy and... Appetite. And appetite. Well, I think the appetite is there when it comes to the general public. And um, one illustration of that is the fact that when I take part in Q&As, be they, you know, virtual or in person, and um, we have Q&A sessions, it's very interesting to see that quite quickly... Uh, our audiences, and that's with the Blizzard, with the Guardian Football Weekly, with others, um, shift from the purely football um, aspect, pu- purely football questions, um, to you know, as in, uh, how can Mourinho, Pochettino play Messi, Neymar, Mbappe, and Di Maria in the same team? To <laughs> well, let's talk about PSG and their model. Yeah, there's a real there's a real appetite from the public. And um, another proof of that would be the the, the specials that we did with the Guardian Football Weekly on um, political questions in football. We did um, one about um, the Saudi bid on on Newcastle. uh, We've done quite a few like that with the Guardian Football Weekly and Yozema over the past year or so. the podcast we did shot to number one in iTunes. I mean, which is astonishing, really, when you think of the kind of subjects we were mm. you know, broaching on, on those occasions. But the problem is elsewhere. The problem is in the appetite of media publications into these kind of stories. Uh, that, I mean, on one hand, I have to say and take my hat off to uh, British sports news journalists who do an absolutely amazing job uh for I uh, I'm thinking of for example Tarek Pancha for the New York Times with, with Rory Smith but uh, Martin Zingler for the times Rob Harris for for AP uh, all these people who are working and trying to get the stories through I mean not saying these stories necessarily get the uh, treatment they deserves in terms of the way they they are publicized and forward. And but the problem is that you first and foremost have got to convince your editors to run the stories. Yeah. And things have changed for that, Andrew, because for example, when about Qatar twenty twenty two, why is it that we had so much coverage of that? And and actually fantastic coverage of that. Well it's because England was one of the bidding countries and that people felt hello, something funny has happened here. Let's look into it. So there was a genuine uh interest, a kind of national interest, so to speak in uncovering those stories. Now this has gone, and, and uh, you do not have FIFA is not subjected to the same scrutiny under Jenny Infantino that it was under Sepp Blatter, or UEFA as, um, under Cefarin as it was under Platini. And the reason for that are, are circumstantial, because to be honest, believe me, and we certainly do our bit at Yozima, there's plenty to be talked about, uh, the governance of FIFA under Jenny Infantino, which for me and many other people who cover the game, that aspect of the game is actually far worse than it was under Sepp Blatter, which mm-hmm. is really saying something. But there is a problem, you know, by uh, uh, with convincing your editors. And one of the biggest problems is the prime of access. If you start running stories which show a particular club or a particular league or a, organize, a particular organization in a poor light mm-hmm. or are asking questions which are inconvenient well the likelihood is that you're not going to be on their christmas card list and that therefore access which is already very limited that you have to their managers their players uh, their information you know the the briefings you can get is going to diminish Mm. quite spectacularly and there is a tendency in in some parts of the media i don't want to name names but i think everybody can think of who i'm thinking about Um, to, in a way, make a pact with the devil here. So we're going to do journalism that is not going to question you. In return, Mm. we're going to uh, gain access. Uh, A caricature of that, the situation with Paris Saint-Germain and the French media to go out of of the English-speaking world, which is quite extraordinary, really, uh, where there is very little, uh, if anything, uh, which... Is asked of PSG, and everything is about megastars and triumphs and uh, all these sort of things—nonsense, really. Um, so this explains that. So this also explains why, uh, you know, we're one of the very few organizations, so to speak. I think my editor Havard would would laugh if you heard the word organization applied <laughs> to Yousiba. We're one of the few investigative units who are totally free to do whatever we want because we are totally independent, financially independent. We don't rely on access to players and managers to do our job. We rely on access to sources, whistleblowers, um, and also good old-fashioned you know, detective work, and, um, which is, by the way, Andrew, the most thrilling kind of journalism you can do. Uh, honestly, it's, you know, once you start to get a taste of that, you, you want more. Um, so, and also we're based in Norway, even though we publish in English, which means that we, do, we are not placed under the same constraints, ridiculous constraints, which are placed uh, on British media in particular when it comes to libel law. Yeah. Because yeah. everything we publish is published in Norway, where Norwegian laws apply. Um, we cannot be sued by people in Britain for something that we wrote in Norway. So that gives us uh, a measure of leeway. I know that's a long explanation, but this yeah. Yeah. this might might explain why it can be a bit frustrating when you think there are all these stories which are not covered. And but believe me again, I think you know the British speaking world is by far the best for that. Uh, there is some a very good investigative journalism in um, uh, in Germany, obviously through people like Der Spiegel. Uh, and you've got from time to time, such as when the whole football League's uh, stories uh, came out. You've got a few publications. We really go for it. So, mm. um, but it's it's a it's a complicated situation for the media at the moment to cover football. I mean, so much is at stake. Um, you do not want to cut yourself from the hand that feeds you, and because of that, you're not perhaps putting the right questions all of the time to the, to the right people, well, you're or not- as it happens, the wrong people yeah. or the wrong kind of people, right. and, and uh, which is why you know which is how. Uh, I think the piece that I wrote on on the links between Premier League clubs, Premier League football in general, and uh, Asian and Chinese e-gambling giants is something that I could do for Josemar. It took me 18 months to... to to get to the end of this investigation, but in many ways it's only starting. There'll be a follow-up piece very soon.
1: Well, let me uh, let me stop you there, if you don't mind, and, and let's yeah, let's on. delve into that because I think everyone will understand what you're saying about the constraints that are put, on, put under, or that certain sections of the media are operating under. That that uh, access is required for some, and that that does. Require some compromise, whether people like it or not, although I do wonder you know what the reaction would be if the sports pages were full of difficult questions being asked of of people in in football i I wonder would there you know would people get a bit fed up of it um, but nevertheless the the piece that you wrote about the Premier League and gambling and gambling companies and what have you you say it took eighteen months. What sparked the decision to investigate this
3: um i was first of all intrigued in um, what i was seeing. i you know like everybody else i could see names on shirts that i did not recognize uh, i was wondering you know who are these people why do they do this but it was like a in the back of my mind and then through um Some circumstances, I came across somebody from inside the industry, a whistleblower, who I had a drink with uh, just before the first lockdown. And um, what he said absolutely floored me because suddenly the scales fell fell from my eyes and I realized, my goodness, this is something quite extraordinary that he's talking about and why is nobody talking about it?
2: Mm.
3: So it's thanks to this one whistleblower and who has you know fed me information gave me details and especially explained to me how the whole thing worked because it's not about i mean it's not about necessarily finding who the bad people are their names their address how much money this and that it's to understand the system and why it was that we had such a huge presence of gambling uh, sponsorship in english football and i'll immediately put aside the uh, british based and Ireland-based companies because they operate within a very strict regulatory framework and uh, the debate about whether it's good or not um, to bet on football games, uh, whether betting is in itself a a dangerous occupation, we know it is, Uh, whether it should be banned. Let's put that aside if it's possible for the time being. I'm not talking about those companies. I'm talking about those companies which are Asian and Chinese, mostly, which use um, players, stadiums, shirts as advertising boards. This is, these are the people I'm talking about, and there are loads of them, and they're present in the Premier League. Uh, currently, nine teams have got um, shirt sponsors who are gambling platforms under one guise or the other, Eight of them are actually based, uh, are Asian. One of them is South African. And um, more have got sleeve sponsors. A number of them have, got, uh, have become global betting partners, like, for example, HTH, which is a Chinese company, is the global betting partner of Manchester United since May 2021.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Arsenal is in the second year of its deal with uh, another company, which might look as if it were a UK company, but is not. Uh, which is sportsbeds.io. Uh, when I say is not, it's in the end, is not. When you go you know, past all the screens, you realize, oh, actually, no, that's not a British gambling company. And these are the ones which are the most problematic and genuinely problematic okay. because we don't know where the money is coming from and we don't know where the money is going, is going to, <laughs> just as little as that.
1: Okay, so what, what, what you've outlined in the piece are, um, betting companies from abroad looking to advertise via the Premier League, the, the yes. popularity
3: of the Premier League. But in order to do that… And, and competition, Central, by the way, yeah. because it's, it's La Liga, but it's also the championship. I mean, it's uh, uh, even the Bundesliga. There, but let's put it that way. The Premier League is the number one market, so to speak, for these people.
1: So, I mean, th- this is why you would see, for example, um, the, the advertising hoardings around the side of the pitch. Yep. displaying ads for a betting company that nobody's ever heard of which yep. may or may not have a, a UK website presence yep. um and these are these are organizations which how are they how are they gaining legitimacy uh, in order to operate within the UK or within uh, the Premier League because as you say if you talk about the the big betting companies in the UK and Ireland whether they're regulated Strongly enough is another question, but they are regulated. So, they where are, yes. how are these how are
3: these guys
1: um, getting a foothold in the Premier League?
3: Well, first thing to know is that gambling is illegal in most, in almost all Asian countries. Certainly in China, Thailand, Malaysia, Indonesia, and so forth, with the exception of Macau, uh, which is the um, territory, this strange territory. <laughs> In, uh, in China. So it is totally illegal. Um, so they have got, even though uh, those Chinese companies, let's concentrate on China, their first market is China. Uh, it's estimated that something like $600 billion are bet per annum on, on sports through these companies in China alone. I said in China alone. Alone, six hundred billion dollars. Now, the way people go about their business there is that they use agents. They go online. There are very often those websites offer anonymity. It's totally opaque. There's no checking of identity, not really as we would think of it. There, there is no follow-up. There are no regulations in place for people who are problem gamblers and so forth. And of course, they are used by criminals uh, for money laundering purposes because it is so opaque that. You don't know where the money is coming from and you don't know where it's going to, as I I said previously. Mm. So these people have got a problem. They cannot advertise, apart from in Hong Kong, they cannot advertise their way. So they have to make people aware. We're here. We offer a sports book, uh, sometimes in cryptocurrency as well, just to make things a little bit more interesting. So how can we make people aware of our existence? And so we can't do it in China. So let's do it in a place where we know... That the exposure is going to be beamed back to China or Malaysia or Indonesia or Thailand, where better than the Premier League because the Premier League is a hugely successful competition. Uh, it has a reputation of uh, also to be a, a fair league, which is absolutely absolutely fair in itself, so you can bet in safety on those guys. so the Chinese viewers will be subjected to a barrage of messages on advertising boards or on the players' shirts which are basically telling them guys, we're here you can go through us and you will have these messages in Mandarin giving you how to use their app and so forth obviously it goes completely over the head of all of us Mm. but they're able so how do they operate? well, they have to get a UK gambling license that's a bit of a problem for those guys they can't so what they do is that they use agents, um, the biggest of which is based on the Isle of Man, called DGP Europe Limited, um, which basically creates ad hoc websites, powers UK websites. And since they themselves have a UK gambling license, in a way they're offering, it's what's called white label. And you know it's a bit like supermarkets who have got their own sure. brand? yeah, going. yeah, yeah. Okay? So you see, it works exactly the same way. So I am... Uh, ask ask blog and I want to advertise my wares in China. So I go to these guys and you set up Ask blog China or AskBet.co.uk, ask uh, <laughs> which yeah. is a shell operation employing three, four people, you know, maximum just for administrative things and to have a um, Somebody who will be able, a spokesperson, for example, or a chief executive that you can present as being the the head of your company. But in fact, this company is almost non-existent. Um, the website, yes, there is a, an English version of the website, which very often, by the way, does not work. <laughs> it's quite amazing. Yeah. So you you go there and you realise, oh, I'm geo-blocked. Oh, website under development. Oh, I cannot actually bet on this platform. Amazing. Uh, the, the social media presence is. Non-existent. I and mean, you think, oh, well, that's not the pro- that's not the point. The whole point is that by using those specialist agents, you create white label companies which can get by proxy a UK gambling license, and then you can advertise your wares. And this is where the problem is, is that. You escape all regulation because the only people who are subjected to regulation as to who are the shareholders, uh, are there criminals in there, uh, where does the money go, what are the accounts? All these things that you've got to uh, abide by if you're a UK or an Irish gambling company don't apply anymore because the only people whom the UK Gambling Commission is going to ask questions to – are the English operation and the Isle of Man operation. And these people, of course, they're not the owners. Mm -hmm. They are not the owners. The owners, actually, nobody knows who they are. Absolutely nobody knows who they are. We know what some of the chief executives are, but believe me, trying to find the shareholding structure of one of those companies is impossible because they're all of them, of course, registered in tax havens, using very often the Philippines as a kind of springboard Either through getting a license there, uh, because the Filipino government makes a lot of money from that, or having uh, an extra, uh, you know, uh, the headquarters will be in the Cayman Islands, the British Virgin Islands, the usual suspects, basically. So So there comes a point, and I managed to get through to the shareholding of one particular company, but there's one point when I realized that the shares had been uh, put in the names, uh, or rather had been transferred to a company based in the British Virgin Islands. And, you know, that was it. I was stuffed.
1: So where...
3: And the other thing as well, the other thing as well, and this is an important thing, is that under UK law, it's perfectly admissible to operate from anywhere in the world, one. Two, the use of nominee shareholders is also legal. So it means that even if you find out who the shareholders are, These shareholders will be mere screens, they're not the real owners. Mm. The shares have been put in their names, but the people who are behind, who are the genuine beneficial owners, the ultimate owners of these companies, we don't know who they are. And the problem, obviously, I mean, you, you could say it's a problem that is valid throughout the world in every single activity, and it's partly true. But the problem is that we know. And we know we cannot assign it to a particular company. Let's, you know, I don't want to say this particular company is criminal. No, 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 no. What I'm saying is that we know that this gambling industry is a huge washing machine for dirty money. We know it's linked to match fixing. We know it's linked to slave labor, to, uh, to the exploitation of sex workers. We know all these things. And the piece explains this in greater detail. But despite all that, we don't ask the questions.
1: So let let me just ask you then, where does the or where do you feel the responsibility lies here because it seems like, A, it's really easy for these shell companies to be set up too easily for like one company in the Isle of Man to be able to issue all these licenses to 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 various companies. Um, beyond that, though, like, is this something that, where do we find the balance with stuff like this? You know, as football fans, there is, I think you want your club to be a good club and to do things yep. the right way, but at the same time, uh, and we know this as Arsenal fans. We want the clubs to spend some fucking money, and there are um, myriad reasons at this very moment in time why deals like this would be very attractive to yes to Premier League clubs because of the pandemic. I mean they're they're all looking for millions anyway, even when you know things were normal, such as they were. But now, because of the pandemic, because of the financial impact if mm-hmm. if a company comes along and is offering you a few million a year you know to be the sleeve sponsor or to when there are live games on you know have their advertise uh, ad, ads doing the rounds on the on the hoardings there aren't too many premier league clubs beyond the ones who could probably uh, afford to turn it down uh, who will turn that down so how does how does this all play into um the premier league's responsibility or the clubs themselves, their responsibility, Mm. or, you know, is it a case that they're going to look at this and say, well, it's perfectly legal under the guidelines, under the regulations that exist in the UK. We're not doing anything wrong. We're, we're getting the money and we're spending it on players. We're spending it on wages. We're, you know, putting some new ribbons on the stadium at the start of a new season, et cetera, et cetera. So, is it is it more about the regulations, um, you know, from on high? Or, or do you think there is some responsibility at Premier League level um, to address this?
3: The Premier League in itself, being a limited company, um, 21 shares, 20 clubs plus the FA, is not in a position, legally speaking, to do anything about that. That's the, to be absolutely clear. They, they cannot do. They can have talks, informal talks about it, Um Sometimes clubs will go back on their sponsorship deal and I think um, one example has to be quoted here and actually um, kudos to the people who campaigned and actually also to the club itself, which is Norwich City. Uh, Norwich City had um, a deal in place, a new deal in place uh, with a company called BK8, uh, which is an appalling company which is using uh, quasi-pornographic images of, of young, very young Uh, Asian women to advertise their wares in in Southeast Asia. It's really pretty horrible. And um, the fans were not happy about it, and the Norwich Supporters Trust campaigned against it, and Norwich fans campaigned against it, and to their credit, the club listened and cancelled the sponsorship deal. And they have moved to Lotus, uh, which is, you know, a far more legitimate company, should Mm. I say. And um, so What they did is that they showed it was possible to do something about it and also not to suffer financially from it because they found a different type of sponsorship. Maybe they lost a few hundred grand here, but they still found somebody willing to put money on the table Mm. to have their name emblazoned on the shirt. So it can be done. The Premier League itself cannot do really much. Um, Then it all comes down to regulation, and the problem is with the white-label system. And I would imagine, by the way, that the big British and and Irish uh, betting operators would be delighted to see <laughs> the white label being, system being scrapped completely. Uh, because, you know, you always end up in the same dead end. Because, I believe me, I've had numerous correspondence with people at Gambling Commission and so forth and uh, all sorts of people. And I always get the same response is that, well, we have very strict regulations when it comes in place. And, and it's true. They have they want to know who the owners are yes they do they they want to know all these things but what applies to paddy power doesn't apply to fun 88 or boat up um and the problem is that this these companies also have a uk arm and if you look at the uk arm and the people who are in charge of it they're okay mm. you know they're just they're agents they're executives blah 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 and then the the owners are somewhere we don't know where they are. Yeah. So you you you're in you're you're, conf- you're in front of you're really hitting your head against the wall because the system is such that you can have the greatest set of reg- you know statutory regulations that you can think of and the strictest, it will still these people will still escape attention despite the fact they're hiding in plain sight. So which is why uh, there is a gambling you know review in um, in going on in the UK at the moment. Uh, the the kind of nuclear option is to simply, because of the addictive nature of, of gambling, um, use that as a prop to say, well, we can't advertise cigarettes on Formula One cars as we used to because smoking is bad for you. Mm. So we should, that's the nuclear option, say, well, all type of sponsorship uh, with these people, no, forget about it. We can't have it. That's the one thing. The second thing, and that's that's one which I've got to delve into because it is complicated, is to use the specific nature of sports, which, as you know, has got some legal at a European level. Sorry to talk about that. But there is a specificity of sport and to say, well, white labels are fine when it's, uh, I don't know, Marx and Spencer uh, selling tins of of mackerel in tomato sauce, but it's not made by Marks and Spencer. It's made by a company in, the, in Portugal or Morocco, but it looks like it's Marks and Spencer. Yeah. And it's, it's a white label and that's fine. On the other hand, uh, we shouldn't have that for, ben- for, for betting and gambling. So the white label system no longer is valid and can be applied. And I know that there have been, there, there are talks within the industry about that because obviously it's not very good for the image of football, And it's not very good full stop because, again, and again, I'm not accusing those particular companies. I mean, I have to be very clear about that. It might be that there are some of them which are perfectly legit and, you know, they're fine. The problem is that we don't know and that we have to know and we should know and we have a right to know. And for the good of the game, but for the good, especially of gamblers everywhere, especially in China, where I repeat, gambling is illegal and can actually take you to prison. Uh. We should be able to know who these people are, where the money is coming from. When you have companies which are able to invest tens of millions of marketing, companies which have just been formed and are able to strike partnership deals worth in total, in one particular case, perhaps worth over 100 million in total in terms of marketing, where does the money come from? Who are the investors we yeah. don't
1: know i th- i think there was an interesting part of this is like the 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 take up um you know in the uk for these companies is is really really small and uh, as you outline in the piece you know some of them have basically no social media presence which is unheard of or or ridiculous if you are trying to launch a product in in a particular market i mean it was interesting philippe to to see in spain last year that the minister of consumer affairs uh, he sent a letter to all the top flight uh, football clubs uh, telling them that they had to to end their gambling partnerships after the conclusion of the 2021 season. And it was a similar number of clubs involved, more or less. Um, you said, I think, eight or nine in the Premier League. There were seven uh, of the 20 La Liga clubs who had betting um, partners or betting companies as their main shirt sponsor. And Mm -hmm. I did a little bit of looking this morning. It's not necessarily a hundred percent accurate, but I had a look at the latest pictures from their opening uh, games of the La Liga season. Four of those clubs no longer have any shirt sponsor at all. Those are Alaves, Cadiz, Granada and Levante, who don't have any shirt sponsor at all this season. Um, rail betis and sevilla both have new sponsors and valencia who were the other club are now sponsored by socios who are this new player in the market um, purporting to provide fan engagement via a, a sort of a platform built on cryptocurrency which really doesn't okay, stand up to yes. any great scrutiny at all and of course. Arsenal uh, are involved with that because um, people can if they want to. And I think it's it's fair to say um, that, you know, all of this is down to choice. You can gamble if you want to. You can buy a fan token for socios if you want to, but it's – it, yeah, it doesn't feel like anything that is designed specifically uh, for the good of fans, more to generate, um, you know, revenue for clubs, revenue for socios, etc., uh, etc. Cetera, et cetera. So it's being dressed up as as something else. But but interesting that in Spain, you know, there's this blanket ban now on on gambling companies. Um, being shirt sponsors you can't sell the naming rights of your stadium for example to a a gambling company so there's a bit of a crackdown going on there
3: it's very relative Andrew very relative because five clubs La Liga clubs have actually just signed a deal with uh, BK8 the sponsor that the Norwich fans managed to get off their shirt Valencia uh, Athletic Villarreal Mallorca and Elche and the way it works is that, uh, as I, I'm discovering it, because it's, it's honestly almost like breaking news, uh, virtual perimeter advertising rights in Asia during games. Mm-hmm. Uh, BK8 branding on the club's Asian digital and social media, media channels. So they have found a way around it. <laughs> <laughs> so so five, five clubs. And I think Real Betis have now got as well uh, a new uh, deal in, in place with JBO, and uh, JBO, and I'm I'm reading the press releases, um, which is expanding their existing Asian audience appeal alongside leveraging the natural sporting synergies between our two <laughs> networks in the digital domain <laughs> will constitute our prime focus. Ugh. Blah 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 blah. Yeah. blah 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 blah. Basically, it's the same thing. And JBO, yes, is a is a gambling company. And also, it's 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 quite remarkable is that La Liga. Uh, ad has an official Asian betting partner, <laughs> which is M88, an official betting partner for the Asian market. So basically, what we're doing is that on one hand we're saying all these things. Oh, and and it disappears from the shirts, and you think, well, that's sorted. Then and then you realize, oh, oh, there's a backdoor. Here they are again. Uh, the difference is that you will not be aware of them in Europe, but believe me, if you're in China, Malaysia, Indonesia, you will be fully aware that these, these guys are official partners of La Liga clubs.
2: Mm.
3: So it's, uh, yeah, it's it's an interesting situation. It sure is. Um, and, and it's, uh, by the way, La Liga is bad, but plenty, I mean, I, I, it might surprise you, uh, for example, that uh, uh, PSG, and you would think because of the links with Qatar, obviously, you know, Qatar being a Uh, A Muslim country, you think, I mean, any kind of link with gambling is totally out of order. But they did have an official Asian betting partner, which was Lofbet, whom you might remember because Lofbet was also, if I'm not wrong, sorry, there are so many names here, but I think they were the official shirt sponsor of Burnley at one point. And PSG took about 3.6 million euros of revenue over two seasons uh, from 2018 to 2020. Uh, And also they've just signed a new three-year deal with a Latin American e-gambling platform which is called playbetter.com uh, so it's wherever you look it's it's completely uh, ubiquitous uh, and I would like to bounce back on one thing sure uh, that you were saying about cryptocurrency because that is the next uh, I'm not talking about fan tokens here because this is something that we could devote a whole Podcast too. This is another very unwelcome unwelcome development. But the way that crypto is currency is inching its way within the game uh, is really, uh, I mean, for me, extremely worrying. Um, We know what people can do with cryptocurrency. um, And we know that, you know, there are problems linked with certain digital payments um, platforms. Um, again, I don't want to name names because you're not in Norway, so I don't want you to. Uh, sure, I appreciate that. trouble. <laughs> but I would I would ask people to look at the new uh, sponsors of their favorite club and to have a look at uh, their links with cryptocurrency and cryptocurrency markets. And it's completely, uh, you know, out in the open. And there are at least I mean, there's one particular company which I'm going to write about, which is has got a particularly uh, checkered reputation. Um, But again, it all goes towards in the same direction. It's Mm. anonymization. Uh, It's it's new uh, flows of money, of of purely speculative money uh, going in. And of course, crypto is is, is fantastic for uh, people who operate on, on the fringe of legality or even outside because it makes things even more difficult to, to track sure. uh, from, from every possible end. And the fact that some clubs are prepared to go full tailed with that is something that is really concerning. And which, again, is not being discussed.
1: Well, look, I mean, I think, again, just to be fair, there are people who will, um, you know, talk about uh, the the legitimate uses of cryptocurrency, and that's absolutely yes. fair enough. But, uh, of course, like anything, there are ways in which it can be exploited, and particularly in maybe a... A developing um, market, or, or certainly new ways with which it can be, uh, be implemented, and there is a greater deal of anonymity involved with crypto as opposed to regular or fiat currencies, I guess. So, yep. look, so that's that's sort of next up uh, for you, I guess, to sort of follow that up. But I would recommend people going to yossimarfootball.com. The piece is called uh, "It's right in front of me here." The trillion-dollar gambling game. Uh, it's well worth your time a really good long read so uh, congratulations on putting that together philippe 18 months of work is a lot uh, to yes. see come out on the page so um i'm sure you're happy it's out there now
3: I'm happy. I was a little bit tense the day on the day of publication, because you always wonder what the reaction is going to be, and you're also wondering if you're going to receive uh, some interesting phone calls and messages. Did you? Uh, I I have received some, but fortunately they were from people who wanted to talk to me about it. So, um, and want to talk to us at Yozima. And uh, by the way, uh, if if you are listening to this and you've got information that you would like to share with us, uh, it's very easy to do so. It's Yozima198 at protonmail.com Yozima 1986 at protonmail.com it will be treated in strict confidence and um, and thank you for the people who have already contacted us uh, this way but uh, yes as you say I'm, I'm, I'm very happy it's out there, I'm very happy it's been taken on um, and it has had loads of views and loads of people tweeting mm-hmm. and retweeting um, many thanks to Gary Lineker for promoting the piece, uh, that's Quite ballsy, I think, uh, from somebody with such a public figure to actually spread out information, which is perhaps not the kind of information that some people who work with him would like to go to see or to be uh, and and also to many colleagues who have uh, forgotten their uh, allegiances. Uh, shall we say? And I uh, have also promoted the piece. So many thanks to them. All right. Look, like I said, it is well worth reading. Uh, it's quite eye-opening
1: in places. And uh, look, people can can form their own opinions by reading exactly. the piece. But I, I would I would recommend it. Um, look, we would be remiss if we didn't talk a little bit of Arsenal. Um, yeah. So. Uh, I don't know if that's even more depressing than <laughs>
2: the <laughs> one we've just been
1: talking about, but but I, I think the one thing I would ask you at, at this moment in time is given that it's only been one game of the season and given that the market is open until the end of, of August, there is still some time for things to happen in the market. It does look like yes. there might be a couple of things going on um, this week. Martin Odegaard, um, at the time of recording, hasn't signed, but it looks close and that's a deal which which could happen. Um, do, you, do you have any sympathy um, or empathy with the difficulties that Arsenal have had in moving players on, or are they reaping what they've sowed in terms of years of poor recruitment and recruitment policy?
3: You know what? I think that both points are not mutually exclusive. Okay. Um, Because what we see is the consequence of a policy or a strategy that has been in place for uh, far too long a time um, the problems that Arsenal is encountering today do not necessarily date back just to the time when Arsene left and, and the time when a new uh, leadership hierarchy was put in place. The, the problems were already there. We already had problems with recruitment. You know, we had problems with players not extending their contracts. We had a problem with um, making sure we got the targets we wanted. And mm. you know, we, we that that predates what we're having now. And this, of course, is made much more complicated by the fact that we are not in the Champions League anymore and we haven't been for a while now. And that makes it very complicated. Um, uh, the, the wage bill is far too high for a club which has been performing the way we are performing. Uh, the club, un- unfortunately, is going down every year in the so-called rich list, uh, which is, when you say rich, it's more... Big revenue list um, every year um, and the pandemic will have hit us harder than anybody else because we rely on ticket sales more than any other club of of that kind of dimension so mm. i do have I do have some sympathy for what people who are in place right now uh, are going through, and that was the caveat because there is a point where this sympathy uh, the, the well of sympathy is quickly. Quickly runs dry. Yeah. um, Because some of the problems we have in terms of personnel are not exactly new. Some personal situations of some players should be certainly held much better um, than it has been the case. On the other hand, I don't think that we are such a bad team. (laughs) I don't think we have such a bad squad. Maybe it's wishful thinking and it's the eternal optimist in me and the eternal optimist who is, I mean, we Arsenal fans are eternal pessimists or have become eternal pessimists. But there's still a part of us that wants to believe that we've got the right players to achieve what we would love to achieve, even though it's going to be a long slog. So, yes, I do have, I mean, I think that there are an awful lot of things. And again, I don't want to go into... Too much detail because there are so many stories circulating, um, as it were, on social networks and uh, also in, you know, in the conversation happening between people in the know, so to speak, which have been floating about, about the structure at Arsenal, the way the deals were structured, the people who were involved. Everybody knows we've talked about that. I'm not too uh, enthusiastic about the role that Kjerg Jorapjian played uh, in, in a lot of our transfers in the very recent past. We all know that. Um, on the other hand if you look beyond that I don't think we're as rubbish as a squad as some people have said I don't because it, it's always especially following one game uh, which was not a good game but a game which was played in a very very unusual and unique context and uh, mm. which 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 revealed fault lines which we knew we already knew existed but threw them in a particularly stark light yeah. Um, I mean, whilst yes. Are, are, are
1: you encouraged at all by the, like, what appears to be um, a strategy in terms of how we recruit this summer? So if we bring in Martin Odegaard, he's 22. Ben White is 23. Uh, Albert Sambi-Lokonga is 21. Nuno Tavares is 21, I think. We are uh, targeting Aaron Ramsdale from Sheffield United, and maybe, maybe he isn't everybody's first choice as goalkeeper. But I have to say, given what we've seen over the last number of years, I, I would prefer even if the fee is bigger than it might be for um, the other goalkeeper we're, we're after, I would rather see at least a 23-year-old come in and potentially do better than a 32-year-old Kia Jirabchian client in Neto, who has been like so-so in Serie A and so-so in La Liga, who, you know, it just feels like that would be making the same mistake we made with other players again you know, and that will be compounded by the fact that what we've done elsewhere in the summer seems to suggest that we know those kinds of deals are are a mistake. Mm. So, is there encouragement to be found in a shift in recruitment policy? And that's that's what it looks like for the most part this summer.
3: I, I think there is. I think there is for several reasons. Uh, first of all, some of the recruits you're talking about are are, are very good players indeed, uh, developing players. They're young, so they're more malleable, so to speak, Mm. Uh, uh, which means that if indeed, you know, uh, Mikel Arteta has got a very clear idea of what he wants to put in uh, on on the field, he will be able to put that point across perhaps uh, more convincingly to younger, more malleable players. That's one thing. Second thing is that, the younger players will be a tad less expensive, even if, you know, they still have to build their reputation, but they will also have a greater resale value, which is, you know, mm-hmm. uh, not to be sniffed at. And also, I think it's 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 a trend, is that football is becoming a younger man's game. I mean, we're not talking about the, the women's game here, we're strictly speaking about the male game here. Uh, but... Th- Younger players seem to have a greater impact than I think at any other time in the history of of recent history of the game um, and we 're not the only club to go down that route um, recruiting younger players uh, and that yes i think is is going into the right direction it 's not going for well, let's, let's get you know three or four grizzled performers who we know are going to do this and do that and we'll end up sixth or seventh and that's okay. Mm. No, the idea is, well, we want to build a squad which in a season or two will be genuine contender for a spot in the top four and then we'll see. Um, so I, th- I don't think there's anything particularly wrong about that and also we should be aware of the financial situation of the club and not be completely, uh, well, not be blind to it, as some people, unfortunately, are who think that, you know, I would have loved to see Jack Grealish coming to Arsenal. Well, we can't we can't pay 100 million or whatever it was, release clause. We can't do that. We can't do that. But he's not going to uh, choose
1: us over Man City anyway at this moment in time, you know, uh, if you're yeah. a player with, with ambition. I suppose the other point I would just put to you maybe is that, and I'm not saying uh, this to be... Um, Overly critical of Mikel Arteta or anything else, but you know, it's clear he is a manager under a bit of pressure, even though it is just one game of the season. The reaction that, that, that people had to that was not simply based on that one game, uh, as, as poor as it was. And I think you're right to say there was some context to it, but I don't know that it excuses the, the lack of readiness or perhaps some of the lack of fight that we saw. But when you invest in young players, and you don't bring in those grizzled veterans who are there to do it now, the next man in, whoever that might be, and whenever that might be, isn't in a position where he has to go, well, what the hell am I going to do with all these old guys? You know, it's sort of a future proof recruitment policy. He may not like all the players but for the most part if you're coming into a squad that's young and still has time to develop etc etc you've got a lot more to work with than if you were, you know, coming in to pick up the pieces of of guys who are, you know, leaving their Zimmer frames at the car park as they come in for training.
3: Yes. And um it's um uh, it's one thing that Wenger used to talk about uh, quite quite a lot actually. Um because recruiting young players is, is two-edged, obviously, because they're more fragile. They like the experience. They like, you know, the uh, they're not, to use a word which I don't really like because, but I'll use it anyway, battle-hardened. I mean, football is not war, but you, you see exactly what I mean. Compared to, for example, the Brentford guys who had to slog it out in the championship last year and know all about this side of the game. Yeah. Um, so they, they are more fragile, and there are moments when you will think, wow, they're not trying hard enough, or they're not this enough, or that enough, And you know, but that's to be expected with young players. Uh, Arsene, remember when he did it, uh, when he started to shift his um, recruitment aims uh, towards younger players, uh, managed to actually balance the team quite well. Uh, I'm thinking, you know, that wonderful 2007-2018, which is one of my favourites of his, which perhaps cracked because he didn't have enough players of experience in the end, but it certainly showed us what it was possible to do with this group of players. And so I'm I'm trying to, you know, be positive here and to think, well, actually, that's that's what we're going to see. Uh, It also didn't help if we had, you know, our two most experienced strikers absent from that game at Brentford. And uh, mm. unfortunately, our, our squad is not dense enough for us not to feel the repercussions of the absences of, of Lacazette and Aubameyang. Um, you know, so I'm, I'm, I'm going in circles here, but basically to say exactly the same thing that you said, <laughs> <laughs> that it is not per se a bad thing. But there will be moments when we feel like it is a bad thing, because obviously – also, I think there's the we finished last season with five wins in five games, uh, which enabled us to finish at a more respectable have a more respectable placing at the end of the season, and I think people thought, well, maybe that's a springboard for the next season. You know, we are now seeing things falling into place, blah blah blah, and and we didn't see that against Brentford at mm, all. No, but I think we're going to see a very very different performance this Sunday. And um, and I mean, I think a very, very different performance this Sunday. Well, I hope so.
1: I hope so. Because, you know, first home game of the season, fans back, the need to bounce back. You know, we have to see... We have to see more from from Arsenal in general, don't we? This season, we have to see more, um, more reaction, more fight, but also more from Mikel Arteta in terms of how he sets up his team and and how he gets the most out of the attacking players that he has. Uh, it's a difficult yeah. one when you're, you're you're facing the the Champions League winners and what have you. But you know, it's also a team that Arsenal beat twice last season.
3: Exactly. Uh, I, I think some prob- a problem we have is. We don't quite have the same kind of um, trenchant in in some parts of our attacking setup. I mean, when you look at the players individually, I mean, I, I'm like everybody. I absolutely love Emil Smith Rowe, and is um, really the kind of player that you can build a side around. And I have to say that the prospect of sinking with Yard again is one that I'm really looking, really, really looking forward to. Mm. Um, we perhaps could have more trenchant white players, but let's wait now. Bucayo is back and he can play from the start. That might actually change uh, a lot of things. And and that's the thing which is so frustrating because you look at it, you think of the potential, you think, well actually, you know, look at this forward line. It's not that bad, is it? It's not that bad. Mm. Um and and um, but it will be down to to Mikel Arteta. I mean it's it's um a well-known fact that in terms of quick transitions to the forwards, I think we're one of the bottom sides in the league. We seem to have a problem with speeding up transitions. Um, we show it in the, the, the really frustrating things is that there were moments last season where we saw it. We saw, oh, that looks good. So mm. that can happen. We even saw it at Brentford in the first few minutes of the game. You thought, oh, that's that's interesting. You know, that was and we want to see more risk taking as well. But that again, the young players who normally would be more prone to take those kind of risks have got to be encouraged by their manager. The manager shouldn't go back to them and say, well, you know, you lost the ball in the situation. We want possession. We want this. We want that. And that, to be honest, I'd love to be on the training pitch to see how Mikel is preparing them, if what the kind of discourse he, he has uh, with them. But um, But I don't. And, but we'll be able to guess what the discourse was uh, in the next few games. Uh, the, what we saw in the first one was certainly not something to cheer anyone up.
1: No, for sure. Okay, well, look, let's hope we get something to cheer uh, on Sunday against Chelsea. Mm. I think that would lighten the mood and you know, uh, bring us into a, a very difficult game against Man City in, in much better shape. Um, okay, well, look, we will leave it there. As ever, Philippe, a pleasure to talk to you. Um, thanks very much, and we'll catch up with you again soon. My pleasure. Thank you very much indeed to Philippe. You can find him on Twitter at Philippe Eau Claire, at Philippe Eau The article in question, the one that we spoke about, is on yasimarfootball.com. You can find a link to it in the show notes in your podcast app right now. You can click right through and read it, or you'll find it in the post on com. So look, we better leave it there. I know we're playing Chelsea on Sunday, but... As yet, there is no team news. There's no injury update. There's no update about some of the players who are missing for the Brentford game, whether they're going to be available or not. Mikel Arteta is meeting the press on Friday morning, so we should get some information from him uh, at that point at least. And we can start to think about what is going to be a very, very challenging game against Chelsea, particularly if we don't have Odegar in the squad. There's some talk that he might be registered, but his visa might not come through in time. could still be without Aubameyang and Lacazette, given their absence last weekend. Eddie and Ketty is injured, Thomas Partey is injured. Uh, it's not great uh, going into a game of this magnitude, but we will go into it in a bit more depth over on Patreon. Myself and Lewis will do our usual Premier League preview podcast. You can find it uh, tomorrow afternoon on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash blog We'll also have a new signings podcast over there as well as when Ramsdale and Oda are officially announced so lots of stuff coming for you on Patreon let's keep fingers crossed we can uh, bounce back a little bit on Sunday against Chelsea like I said tough game we'll talk about it more on Friday James and I will talk about it of course on Monday on the ArsCast Extra fingers crossed the morning is more goodly than badly as ever thank you very much indeed for being here hope you enjoyed the show if you like it give us a rating or a review on uh, iTunes or Apple podcasts or wherever you can leave ratings on podcasts these days it would be greatly appreciated. So until the next one, take it easy, folks. Have yourselves a great weekend. Cheers. Bye-bye.
2: Yeah, I'll we'll be right down.
1: Give us a minute. I'm fucking scrolling through me Instagram, you know? Man's got to have a bit of peace and quiet at some point. Uh, look at that. <laughs> look, it's a dog. It's a fucking dog, but he's on a merry-go-round. Ah, where would you see that kind of stuff? Look at it. There's another dog just sitting there. Fucking show your owners. Put him on a bleeding merry-go-round. Come on, lads. There's a footballer. Look, he's got a brand new car. He's so relatable. He really is. Ah, oh, Jesus, there's me nephew, Jeff. Thinks he's an influencer. Couldn't fucking influence me bollocks. And what's this now? Oh, well, isn't this a thing? Arsenal after signing a couple of new players. And who do we see? Edu. There he is with a fucking gold-plated pair of fucking tongs, barbecuing sausages on the top of the Taj Mahal, wearing an apron that says I'll grill when I want. I don't know why i use this app at all.